and I would just feel like I'm like the worst dog parents in the world. You're listening to the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host and resident dog mom, Erin Scott. Not only can a dog be your best friend, but I believe a dog can be a healer, a teacher, and an inspiration. I can't wait to share with you stories of how the love of a dog is changing our lives and changing the world. This is Believe in Dog. Welcome to episode 80 of the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host, Erin Scott, and thank you so much for being here today. Today, we're going to be meeting Sharon Ventula of the Human Canine Collaborative. And I am so excited for this episode. And it actually feels very personal to me because Sharon was so kind as to hold space for me at several times during our conversation where I could share some of my experiences with my dog, Nino. If you've ever had a dog in your life that didn't dog like all the other dogs, then this episode is for you. And if you're currently struggling with a dog like this, then I think you're going to love hearing everything that Sharon has to say. I know February was Pet Dental Health Month, but we really need to think about our dog's dental health all year round. I recently learned that 80% of our dogs over three years old have active dental or periodontal disease. And dental disease is actually a sign of other inflammation in the body and can be connected to everything from cardiovascular problems, kidney problems, diabetes, certain types of cancers, joint disease. Your dog's dental health actually can affect everything in their body. And you know that I am obsessed with finding the best and healthiest products for our dogs. So I was so excited to find out about teeth. That's right, teeth. Just a tiny spoonful of teeth powder in your dog's water bowl will make a huge improvement in your dog's dental health. It's the only thing that ever made my vet stop and go, hey, what did you do with Penny's teeth? They actually look so much better. So forget trying to figure out how to get your dog's teeth brushed without them biting you. Forget those sticks or green shoes. What you need is teeth powder, just a tiny amount in your dog's water bowl. And listeners of this podcast can save 20% on your teeth order with the code ADM. And you'll be on your way to a healthier smile for your dog without any anesthesia needed. Check out the link in the show notes to find out more about teeth and save 20% on your orders. One of the things that's incredibly special about Sharon is her professional background. She's not only a certified professional dog trainer, but she's actually a registered occupational therapist who works with humans also. This is such a unique combination of background and skills and education that brings something to the field of dog training that I've never encountered in anyone I've ever spoken with before. You know, there's a lot of different schools of thought on dog training. You might have seen some of this play out on social media, but Sharon brings an interesting perspective to it for dogs who I said, don't dog like all the other dogs. Sharon's going to explain to us the term neurodivergent. And in people, this could play out in many different ways. If you've ever experienced 
a trauma or anxiety, your nervous system might be wired differently than the person sitting next to you. So Sharon is going to talk a little bit about what this looks like in people so that we can understand it and draw those correlations for something we've either experienced ourselves or perhaps experienced with someone who we know, love, or care about. And then we're going to talk about what neurodivergence means in regards to our dogs, because not all dogs respond to training the same way. Not all dogs respond to the world around them in the same way. And my dog Nino is definitely one of these really special dogs. And this type of work with dogs is particularly important and special in Sharon's life because of her own dog Muggins. Based on the shelter's description of Muggins, Sharon had a pretty good idea that when she and her partner adopted Muggins, that Muggins was going to be quite a handful. She did not expect, though, that her and Muggins would be triggering each other's trauma. Just doing something seemingly normal, such as taking Muggins for a walk, turned into an incredibly stressful situation for Sharon because of how reactive Muggins was to the people, the dogs, and the world around him. So Sharon's also going to share some of the incredibly unique and, in my opinion, brilliant ways that she has learned to help Muggins navigate the world in a way that helps everyone feel safe. I can't wait for you to meet Sharon Vinchula. So we are here today with Sharon Vinchula. Sharon, how are you? I'm doing well, Erin. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so excited. I have so much I want to talk to you about. And I always love starting off by asking about your childhood experiences with animals. Uh, for instance, I did not grow up with pets. I didn't even know I liked dogs until I was 25. So I'm always curious what that looks like for everyone else. Mm, I love this question. I had a lot of experiences with animals growing up. Uh, my family, my parents got their first dog just before I was born. And so we always had a dog in the home. And that dog, um, my mom really wanted us to live like, in a almost in like a homestead. And so like to be very uh, close with animals. And so that dog that we had ended up having puppies twice. And so I got to experience seeing them be born and uh, helping to take care of them for the first few months as much as I helped. I mean, I was like less than five years old, so that was very helpful. <laughs> but it was really, it was really interesting to, um, to see that sort of like the stages of life for animals. Um, and we also had cats and we raised rabbits for food, uh, which was always co really controversial in my mind. Um, and still I feel like a little hesitant saying that, but, but that like people need to eat. <laughs> and so we raised rabbits for food and because my parents wanted us to, um, just like be very close with the land and, and what we were eating. So I had a lot of different ways of interacting with animals from a young age. And that's very different than, than most people. So it's really interesting that you had that kind of experience. Yeah. You know, you share a story on your website that, that really resonated with me about experiences from a young age of feeling anxious. Mm. And that was something I really related with. And it was probably not until I was in college that I knew what it was <laughs> and that I understood that not everybody was experiencing life the same way that I was. So do you want to share about your experiences? 
Yeah, I would love to. I have a lot of experience with anxiety. And when I was younger, I didn't have language to describe what was happening. I didn't probably identify as being a person with anxiety until after I was out of college. Um, Because like mental health was not really a part of my world. Same. Yeah. Yeah. So I like just didn't know how to describe myself. Um, I very much experienced um, difficulties in social situations, like a lot of anticipatory anxiety, especially when there were transitions. Like I had a really hard time with the first day of school every year. And my dad would have to walk with me to the bus stop because I, I would just get paralyzed with fear. I couldn't go. And, um, and so I was very quiet also. And I think I internalized a lot of my struggle and didn't, didn't speak up or ask for help or even know that I needed help. And so it wasn't until I was out of college and these struggles were coming up in my work that I pursued therapy and, um, tried to like understand myself and, and help myself. And then it wasn't until I went back to school for occupational therapy that I learned about uh, sensory processing and the differences in how I experience sound and touch and light and all of these different sensations. And I, I understood finally that that was contributing a lot to my anxiety. Yeah, I am completely fascinated by like the nervous system and how things affect us and can trigger us and how, you know, in fact, I'm going to share the story. I wasn't sure whether I would ever talk about it or not, but I recently went to a concert and it was the first time since COVID that I had been to a big outdoor concert like this. And we had what are considered great tickets where you're basically standing directly in front of the stage in front of even like the pavilion seated people. Mm. And I got really overwhelmed and was like, I don't think I can be here. It's very loud. There's a lot of people bumping into me. Um, It was very hot. Um, I didn't have any like water and, you know, it's like I didn't have a seat to like sit and put like my water bottle down or, you know, like if I had been in like a seat, I think I would have been fine. But I really don't like the experience of having people bump into me and to some people and to my friend who I was with it's just no big deal. But I got very overwhelmed and was like, I need to get out of here right now. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I feel like, especially since COVID, I've only had less than a handful of experiences being around a large group of people like that. And it's almost like my, I forgot how to do it. Or I just, I, you know, it's been two, three you know, years and 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 now all of a sudden my nervous system's like we can't do this anymore and and so it's been it's been interesting uh for me just sort of taking stock of how how my body reacts to these types of things and and I feel excited that I have a a language now to explain that because I think there were times I can identify times as a child where I didn't feel comfortable but didn't know I could say that and didn't know what to say to really express what I was experiencing. And, um, 
yeah, I'm really excited that we've we've that you know, we're we're starting to put a you know language around these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that experience. I that resonates so much with my own experience of being in a crowd. And, um, and I would, I remember just being in situations like, like you're describing where it's loud and hot and uncomfortable and, and people are bumping into me and I would just get really irritable and withdrawn. And then just, everyone's just like, what's wrong with Sharon? (laughs) And I was like, I don't know what's wrong with me. Yeah, that was exactly me. And that was why I'm like, oh, I just need to get out of here because I don't want to ruin this experience for other people. You know? <laughs> but good for you for saying like, this is enough. I need to go. That's, that's what my therapist said. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard to do. Yeah. But that in, that um, that experience of being bumped into, it's so overwhelming. Like, it's unexpected, right? Somebody's unexpectedly bumping you and it like throws you off balance, you know? And then there's that anticipation of, is it going to happen again? Or like, what's behind me? And when there's so many people around, like it's all like uh, out of control. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I guess there is a control element of it. And I I don't know whether that's good or bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think it's just like part of it. Like you we need to feel like we have control over what's happening to us, I think. And then in those situations, we don't. And and yeah, and I guess the way I'm wired is that that's difficult for me. Yeah. So one other thing I know about you is that you were a guide dog raiser in college. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. I, How did you get into doing that? Well, I... Um, was going to school at Ithaca College in upstate New York, and I was looking for like an extracurricular activity. And I, when I originally went to school, my plan was always to bring my dog with me when I got to be a junior, because then I would be able to live off campus and she would be able to live with me. And after my freshman year, she passed away. And so I didn't have her anymore. And I was really missing living with dogs. But I was a college student. And I was like, Oh, I don't know if I can come like commit to a dog right now. But I saw another student on campus with this guide dog puppy. And so I ended up meeting her and asking her about like how she got into it. And she said there was a local chapter of Guiding Eyes for the Blind, which is a an org in New York that raises guide dogs. And so I contacted the organization and applied to be a puppy raiser. And they approved me and I got to ra- raise a two-month-old puppy for the next year. That would be a neat experience to have during college, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really neat on a college campus because it's like college campuses are like microcosms of cities, right? So it's like this smaller version of the real world. And there was a lot of flexibility, you know, with uh, my schedule. Well, I guess I like I had to go to classes, but like I didn't have to have a full day like I was at work you know, and I also got to, once she was old enough, I got to bring her to class. And that was really cool too. So did they teach you like how to train them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we would go to weekly classes, uh, like group classes, and they would teach us uh, all different things like 
about hygiene care and socialization and basic uh, training cues and behaviors. And then we would practice in between sessions. Oh, that's really cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was so fun. So is that what led you into doing like animal assisted activity work? Hmm. Almost. I think doing that work, the guiding eyes work, led me to realize that I could do, I, I could form a career with dogs, but I wasn't quite sure what that looked like. And so it wasn't until a few years later when my partner and I moved to Los Angeles that I got into dog training as a profession. Oh, my partner and I, before we moved to California, we ended up adopting our own dog. And that dog, whose name was Gabby, I really wanted to do some sort of work with her. And so she and I started volunteering at a local hospital. And then when we moved to Los Angeles, we expanded and started going into nursing homes and schools. I've always had this dream that one day I'll be able to do some kind of work like that (laughs) with my dog. I don't know that I've had the perfect dog for that yet, but also I will admit I'm not always super disciplined with on the training aspect. So, you know, I'm aware of that about myself also. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, it does really take the right dog, you know, like not every dog wants to go meet a bunch of new people, you know, every time they go somewhere. And so it takes a certain certain personality of a dog to be able to do that. And so, yes, you ended up becoming a dog trainer. And so did you decide to do that like as your career or were you doing that kind of on the side of something else or or what did your professional world look like at that time? Hmm. I decided to become a dog trainer and I was doing that full time and I got into behavior modification and uh, rescue rehabilitation Um, because of the person I was learning from was into that work. And I was like sort of an apprentice and and working my way up to becoming a trainer. And I, because I was also doing this visiting work with Gabby, I jumped on an opportunity to become the director of a program called Lend-A-Paw that had a training component where we trained people and their dogs to go through testing and become therapy dog teams. And then I would also um, coordinate with local sites around Los Angeles and pair these teams with the sites so that we had this whole group of people visiting all these different places with their dogs. Oh, I love that. (laughs) And so is it through all of this type of work that you were introduced to the field of occupational therapy? That's right. Yeah. When I was doing Lend-A-Paw, Somebody from the University of Southern California reached out to me, and her name was Ashley, and she's an occupational therapist, and she was creating uh, activities for finals week to support students with stress management, and she wanted to bring therapy dogs to campus as part of that. And so I worked with her to get that program off the ground and we ended up becoming friends and she introduced me to a couple of other faculty members in the OT uh, school and I just fell in love with that profession and I decided to go back to school for that. I feel like there's like all the synergy with your journey here of like, then that helps you discover things about yourself and then that helps you work with dogs. And I just, I love how, how that all has played out for you. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, you're right. There's this sort of like 
intuitive uh, path that I've been following. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, it was, I'm sure you could never have, like, plotted all of this out, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> and so I know then COVID happened. And so was it before or like during COVID that you moved back to New York? It was the summer of 2020. So the lockdown happened in March. And I was running my own dog training business at this time. And I'd graduated from OT school. And I was kind of in a place where I like didn't know quite what was next with my career. But I kind of, I knew I needed to change something. And so then COVID happened. And then my partner's sister had a really bad car accident. And she ended up suffering a brain injury. And at the time, my partner was out of work because he worked in the entertainment industry, which all shut down. Shut down, yeah. Yeah. And so we were like, and our dogs were gone by that time. And so we were like, what do we do? And we really wanted to help uh, Tom's sister. And, and so we were like, let's go. And that's a really, uh, <laughs> I'm getting like choked up thinking about this. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we left and cause we didn't know like how bad the situation was with her or how long she would need help. And we just wanted to be available and like, didn't know what we, what was next for us after that. So, so we came back to New York. And then when did Muggins come along? So Muggins, um, the situation with my sister-in-law, um, she made an amazing recovery. Oh, wonderful. I wasn't sure whether to ask or not, but I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to leave you hanging. (laughs) She made an amazing recovery. She's such an incredible person and worked so hard. So she was able to go back home and live like independently with her family and, uh, and she's doing wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. And so then Tom and I were here And we were like, well, now what? (laughs) And so I was, of course, I was like, let's adopt a puppy. (laughs) And so we found, I was scrolling on Instagram one day and I saw this picture of this puppy who was coincidentally at the Tompkins County SPCA, which is outside of Ithaca. And the description of Muggins on this post was like, oh, Muggins needs a job. We're looking for like a really experienced person who could give him a job. And I was like, that's interesting. And I'm always, I always, I've been in the rescue world. So I know how like, you know what that phraseology (laughs) means? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I called them up and, and I figured Muggins would be gone because the, that post was from when he was two months old and they were, this was a few weeks later that I ended up calling, but Muggins was still available because Muggins had a problem where um, he would bite people a lot when meeting them. And and on the one hand, that's pretty normal for a puppy at that age. Um, he was about three months old. And that's pretty normal for puppies to be mouthy and, you know, using their mouths to explore. But Muggins, like, was doing it to such an extreme degree that like when he was trying to interact with people, he just couldn't help himself. He would like, if their hands were moving, he would bite their hands or if they walked past him, he would bite their shoes or their pant legs. And, and it was just really overwhelming. So people would go and meet him, but then wouldn't adopt him. And what kind of breed mix description would you say Muggins is? Muggins, we did a DNA test because at first we totally thought Muggins is lab and border collie because that's exactly what he looks like. 
And Muggins is not either of those. He's actually uh, two different hound breeds. Oh. Plus German Shepherd, plus American Staffordshire Terrier. Oh, wow. I never would have pegged that. I, <laughs> I totally would have gone the Border Collie mix route. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it just goes to show you, like, they just because they look a certain way doesn't mean that's their breed. Yeah. And so you guys do decide to adopt Muggins, and you had this great phrase about how uh, you and Muggins triggered each other's trauma. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> Can you tell us what what that looks like for what looked like for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after graduate school, I was diagnosed with complex post traumatic stress. And so what that looks like for me is it was a lot of physical symptoms, like uh, difficulty sleeping. I had a lot of problems with digestion, um, panic attacks, and certain experiences would trigger me to like feel a certain way. And then I would sort of get stuck in this state of like feeling like I'm a failure or something. And so that would happen when I was uh, walking with Muggins because Muggins grew really fast. So Muggins is a large breed and is now 90 pounds. Oh, wow. Yeah. So grew really fast and uh, is reactive. So we would see people and Muggins would really get excited to see people like wanted to uh, interact with them and was really curious, but was also nervous and, and didn't know how. And uh, his body would just sort of get really mobilized and he would pull on the leash or bark sometimes. And, and at the same time, Muggins would like pay attention to people, like look them in the eyes and like be really curious about them. And then people would respond by like wanting to come closer and wanting to say hello. And so I would have had this experience where Muggins is pulling me, like something is happening to my body that's out of my control. And that would trigger me to go into like a freeze where I would just like not know what to say. My mind would go blank and, um, and I Muggins wasn't listening to me and the person is coming closer and they're not listening to me. And, and I would just feel like I'm like the worst dog parents in the world. You know, I just, I can relate with some of this in our own way because our dog Nino is a special guy. Mm. And I think with him, it's primarily trauma-based. We know that animal control took him out of a bad situation. And uh, in Baltimore, the animal control is notoriously understaffed. And so, you know, for something to rise to a level where actually a dog is being pulled out of a situation, like, I feel like it had to be pretty egregious, you know? (laughs) And so when we first met him, right? Like they wanted to do this meet and greet with our dog Penny, which makes sense. And I mean, Nina just didn't even really react to Penny's and they're like, oh, this is great. And, you know, of course we get him home. And once he finally started to feel safe and comfortable, you realize, oh, he has this huge personality Mm -hmm. that we didn't get to see because he had been so shut down. And we like, we call it zombie dog where he just completely shuts down from the world. And so I love this term that you've used um, as neurodivergent. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know whether Nino like specifically would fall into that or if it's just 
trauma, you know, trauma based. Um, and if, if it matters or if there's a difference, I'm not sure. But he's this big dog, very handsome. And people are just so drawn to him. And yet it's like, no, please, you know, like you're walking around the neighborhood and children, you know, oh, can I pet your dog? And we would always say, oh, you can pet Penny, you know, because she she'd be fine with that. But like he is not the one. And it's like he's a totally different dog outside of the house versus inside of our house. Mm -hmm. So outside of the house, he just goes into shutdown mode. Inside of the house, if someone new comes over, he gets very like threatened and like it's um, it's like he'll walk towards them but then go retreat and it's like he kind of wants to interact but now he's scared and he has nipped people um it's very embarrassing (laughs) you know um and and so I just understand this concept of like life with this dog that doesn't dog the same way as all the other dogs you know (laughs) that's such a great way to put it yeah and like I think Mm, thank you for sharing that there and describing that like conflictedness within Nino that like he like probably desperately wants to be social, you know, and to interact and connect with people, but is so afraid and doesn't know how that it's like, it creates the situation of like overwhelm for yeah. both of you. Yeah. And so I actually had the pleasure of getting to meet Muggins and I I feel like it's very special that I got to visit your house and, and everything because that's very, not very common with my podcast guests. I'm usually doing this all kind of remotely. So I had attended a a conference a a couple months back and it was literally right around the corner from your house. I was so surprised. I know. Yeah. It was so, uh, such kismet that it worked out that way. And so I just really appreciated getting to see how your process was for introducing him to me. And do you want to talk a little bit about like, how do you introduce people if they're coming over your house and and work with him? Yeah, great question. So what I realized with Muggins was that um, he would react so big to people coming over and that would trigger me to get overwhelmed and freeze And so I needed a plan to like work through that and to slow it down, you know, because when someone comes to your house, there's this speed that's happening with the interaction where it's like you feel this urgency with opening your door and getting them to come inside, you know, and, and that just doesn't, it doesn't work for us (laughs) to do, to just do that, you know, because, uh, cause Muggins is inside and is reacting. And if I just open the door, then Muggins either runs outside or jumps on somebody. And it's like this whole uh, unpleasant situation. So I worked out, there's all these steps that I follow. So one step is to like, know exactly what time somebody's going to arrive so that I can like get a bag of Uh, treats cut up and ready. And so I can make sure I'm not doing anything else and I'm like focused. Mm -hmm. And then I also texted you and I think I told you, uh, I asked you to wait outside and told you that I would be doing an exercise with Muggins to help Muggins calm down. Um, So that helped me to feel like I don't have to rush because I told you already what was going to happen and asked for your help um, by asking you to stay outside. And then I discovered Leslie McDevitt's Control Unleashed program and pattern games. And those have been so hugely helpful for me and Muggins because the pattern games 
they provide this structure of like a simple repetitive sequence of behaviors like um, and the sequence usually has in it somewhere where Muggins looks at me and then I put a treat on the ground and that repeats over and over and over. So Muggins is getting this really nice feedback that looking at me is a good thing. And Muggins is also looking up at me and then looking down to eat the treat. And that movement of the head, um, it triggers this nice linear motion of the vestibular sense or your sense of balance and rhythm. And that's really calming for the nervous system. And because it's a simple sequence of behaviors, I don't have to think a lot in order to do it. So it doesn't, if I go blank, I can still access that exercise because it's so simple and because we practice it and it becomes really predictable and familiar. So I did that. Um, I think I had Muggins outside and we were doing those activities when we saw your car drive up. And then I was able to just walk Muggins slowly closer and closer to you until I welcomed you into our backyard. Yeah, I just I really appreciated this process because boy, do I know the (laughs) the shit show (laughs) of when, you know, the dog's going nuts at the door and you're trying to get the person in and, you know, it's like this chaotic scene and, you know, and it's like, well, I know that's how to not do it, (laughs) you know, and so I, I really, you know, I genuinely just appreciated the clear communication, the expectation tell me what to do, I'll do it. Cause I want this to be a good experience for everyone, you know? And I, I, uh, I just appreciated how much thought you put into all this. Mm, thank you. I often, uh, worry that I'm overthinking things. So I really appreciate you saying that. <laughs> well, I mean, I see the, the positive experience that it became for him. And I mean, I feel like that's what the goal is. Right. And, and so yeah. that's, that was a, a wonderful way to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can see that like, you're probably not going to like be throwing big dinner parties, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> but like, I get it. Yeah. I mean, we basically haven't really had any company over in seven years, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it really has affected how we, we plan things out and, and do things. I mean, there's only been one time in seven years that we have gone away for any length of time like yeah. both of us. Right. And it took months of planning with a friend of ours to get, you know, used to him and, you know, have him be in our home. And, and we were still just like very nervous the whole time we were gone. Is it any other time we go away? It's got to be somewhere where we can bring him. It's a lot of thought that goes into it when you have a, a dog of that nature. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of effort. And so you've also talked about Muggins being reactive and you had shared your strategy for when you're out on a walk and you find, is it to dogs or people or both that he gets reactive to? To both. Okay. And so you had this exercise and I was like, this is so brilliant. And so the opposite of like what everybody else, like just, I mean, how many times are you just walking through the neighborhood and somebody, you know, a dog is, you know, barking at us and the people are across the street and they're yanking on the leash and sit, sit. And the dog's not listening because he's already, you know, in reactive mode. And, and then the people are getting frustrated and you're just like, you know, trying to just keep trucking and get out of their way. And just when you shared your philosophy for this, I was just like, Oh my God, this is brilliant. (laughs) So can you share share your approach with us? Yeah. Um, are you talking about the the running on leash? Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, I noticed from when Muggins was very young, she would have a really hard time being like excited and being still at the same time. And this made made it really challenging to go to group classes. So we went to group classes though, because Muggins needed to. And I remember um, making sure that I was like in a group class, they put you in these different stalls sort of where there's like a, like a half wall between each, each dog and human. And I would always make sure I was in the one that was closest to the door because the stall it was not enough space for Muggins to move around while seeing other dogs moving around. And so we would have to sometimes or like several times during the class slip outside so that Muggins could move around and then we'd come back in and we'd be able to like sit and pay attention uh, or do something like more still for a, a little while. So when Muggins would get into that state on a walk, um, it's everybody's like first instinct to try to like get the dog to stop, right? To like sit still. And, and I used to do that too. I would always be like, oh, the dog is like jumping around. I need them to do the opposite. I need them to sit still. But with Muggins, that just was not going to happen. And so I was like, well, then I'm going to let Muggins uh, move. Muggins needs to move in this situation. And so we're going to move away from whatever it is he's reacting to. And then I wanted to make sure that Muggins could tell me when he needed to move instead of just moving, right? Instead of just running, I needed us to be able to do it together. Otherwise, he was just going to drag me down the street and it would be really unsafe. So Muggins, I think, just started like one day grabbed the leash in his mouth. And I think it was when he saw my partner, Tom, going jogging. And Muggins like grabbed the leash and looked at me and was like, I want to do that. And I was like, okay, buddy, let's go. And so we just like ran down the street a little bit. And then I repeated that. So then every time Muggins would grab the leash, I would read that as a ask, can we run? And so now that has become a thing. Muggins will sometimes see another dog and then he'll grab the leash and look at me. And I'm like, okay, let's run. And then Muggins can't can run and get the movement that he needs, but we're doing it together and it's a clear ask for it so that it prevents Muggins from dragging me down the street and it prevents Muggins from reacting to this dog because he has a way to ask for help and get the help that he needs. I just, I really just think that that approach is brilliant. And I was thinking of a podcast I heard, I believe it was Brene Brown, probably a year or two ago. And she had these two women on who wrote a book and they're sisters. And I'll have to try to find the link to the book because I feel like I'm like butchering this. But the takeaway that has stuck in my mind ever since I've heard this was that when us as people, when our fight or flight response is triggered and we're having that adrenaline response in our body, the best thing that we can do you know, go out and take a walk around the block and how that helps our body process this chemical reaction that's happening. And so, you know, if somebody cuts you off in traffic, you know, on your way home, get home, walk around the block, you know, Mm -hmm. you and your husband have like a disagreement about something and, you know, you're feeling like I get like that hot, you know, and you feel like shaky, you know, get out, walk around the block, go to the park, get out and move. And so I'm thinking that like, 
the, you sort of intuitively, you guys, you know, you and Muggins together figured out this way of like, oh, there's something, let's move. And so I just, that's why I really thought it was such a great way of, of, of approaching that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, you're right. The nervous system needs to move in fight or flight, right? Like fighting and fleeing both involve a lot of movement. And that's because that's what the body is set to do in that state. They were talking about we were back in the the hunter gatherer days, and you see like the lion, and you know your body reacts, and you have to run to get away. And and we're all living in this current world where our our body, you know, our our body's like having this reaction, and we're not doing anything to do it and that it can cause other health problems. And so I was just like, oh, wow, that was just like such an important takeaway that's like influenced me over these last few years of how I've tried to to handle things. And, you know, it's not always 100% possible, but I try to make it, you yeah. know, as regular as I can when it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, just do the best you can. And so you had, had shared just some of the other, you know, just interesting I don't want to use the word challenges because I feel like that has more of a negative connotation, but just how you've learned that Muggins reacts to things like you can't really put like a harness on him. Like he's not a dog that you'll ever walk on a harness or uh, like as he got bigger, he didn't like being in like a crate. Mm -hmm. And, and one of the other things that I had in my notes was how he even reacted to you getting new pajamas. (laughs) Because it was different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that one in particular made me think of Nino. Uh, we let him out aside a couple of mornings ago to, uh, you know, have him do his morning constitutional. And he started barking. And I realized, oh, our neighbors had been doing some work in their yard. And they had pulled up all of their wooden, like, landscaping ties, I think is there. And they had them, like, kind of leaned against their fence because they were replacing them with new ones. And that was not there yesterday that was not like that and he was very concerned about that you know (laughs) because it was different yeah yeah well you mentioned earlier not knowing if neurodivergent was the right term for Nino do you want me to talk about that yeah I'd love that yeah yeah so so first I want to define neurodiversity which is just a term that means neurological diversity which means that every nervous system has a different way of perceiving and responding to the world, right? So we all have maybe different levels of sensitivity in our senses, and we have different ways of feeling and experiencing things. And then we all respond different ways. Some people are more actively responding to the environment. Others are more passively responding. And so, so each of us is different. And neurodivergent is like, it's a counter to the term neurotypical, where neurotypical is like this idea that there is a, there's like a dominant social standard for what is quote normal, unquote. But what the, what people assume is that neurotypical means like everybody's the same and neurodivergent means those people are different. But neurotypical is just sort of like a range of people that do things similarly or like the way I think of it is neurotypical are people who 
can really adapt to different environments really easily and don't need extra supports. And they're able to work within the structures and the systems that are available in society. And neurodivergent is people who do need different supports um, or who maybe are more sensitive to the point where things are painful or distressing or maybe even less sensitive to the point where it's like, I don't even know that's happening. And um, so neurodivergent is an umbrella term in itself where underneath neurodivergence is sensory processing differences um, ADHD, mental health labels like anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, uh, learning differences, uh, epilepsy. Um, so all of these different ways of being in the world. So I identify as neurodivergent um, because I have sensory processing differences and I have anxiety and um, post-traumatic stress. So all of those reasons mean that my nervous system needs extra support and operates in a way that's different from most people. And I think that Muggins is neurodivergent as well, because I've noticed that Muggins is more sensitive than most dogs when it comes to um, being touched. Like they're very particular, like you were mentioning with the harness, they're very particular about when they wear gear and they get more frustrated than other dogs do if I'm trying to put gear on when Muggins isn't ready. Um, Muggins is very particular about when he gets petted, like he doesn't like to be petted on walks. So we always say no when people ask. But Muggins loves being petted first thing in the morning, you know, by me and my partner, you know, so there are these just like very particular ways that Muggins um, needs needs to be treated and needs to have a lot of control, I think, over what's happening to his body. So if you had to estimate, do you have any idea of like kind of like what kind of what percentage of dogs would fall into that category or people either way? <laughs> Those are good questions. I don't know. I think it's really, yeah, I don't know that I have a number. I've seen numbers where but I can't even like quote a, a reference for this, but I've seen a number where it's like maybe a third to 50% of dogs have anxiety. <laughs> so like if anxiety is a type of neurodivergence, then you could think of it like that. Um, but yeah, I don't want to like, I don't know for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, you know, like I said, I'm just glad even with people that, you know, we're starting to, realize that there's enough of a, a percentage of the population that, you know, we need to have a, a language and a way to define it and talk about it and, and realize like that it's not bad or wrong or you're broken or weird, you know, you just like process the world differently and that that's okay. <laughs> and, and, and here's this, you know, like uh, several years ago, I first heard the term uh, HSP or highly sensitive person. And, you know, I think I fall into that category and maybe not as much as other, you know, maybe there's people who are, you know, more, you know, higher in that. But like, I definitely think with smell, with taste, I've always, you know, been, I'm very sensitive to, you know, my husband, when I met my husband, this was a long time ago now, but like, he would laugh that I had like the palate of like a five-year-old because I only wanted to eat like pizza and chicken fingers, you know, because a lot of strong tastes and smells were unpleasant to me. Yeah. He's, he's such a good cook that he's gotten me much better now. But. <laughs> That's great. So I'm curious, do you think that Nino falls into this uh, category? 
Sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah. With how visually sensitive he is to like, not just notice that one thing is different about the environment, but to be concerned about it. That is a definite sign. And it sounds like the way he uh, just gets so overwhelmed in social situations that like, yeah, I would say there's probably some maybe additional sensory sensitivities going on or anxiety um, and the trauma. I think anytime someone is showing signs of post-traumatic stress or like lingering signs of trauma, that means the nervous system has changed right, right. in order to adapt. And that's a type of neurodivergence. Yeah, like we always use the term hypervigilant to describe yeah. him. So before Muggins, had you ever had any experience through your training work of working with a dog that had these kinds of like sensory differences? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I worked with several. Um, one of them was a little Cavalier King Charles named Palmer, who was one of my regular clients for years. And Palmer, because uh when he's a Cavalier King Charles, and he was diagnosed with syringeomyelia, which is common for Cavaliers because the the way they're bred, they're bred to look like puppies even when they're adults. Yeah. And so what that means is their skulls don't grow as big as they actually need to, um, and that gives us the effect of their really big baby eyes. But unfortunately, their brains and spinal cords do grow to the full size. And so there becomes this pressure on the nervous system that impacts the spinal cord and impacts um, how things feel, impacts the sensory system. So, uh, So Palmer had some signs of anxiety, like resource guarding, like really being concerned about like space and being touched. Um, would like yelp sometimes really like suddenly and loudly when being picked up. But then the next time being picked up in the same way wouldn't yelp. So it was like really unpredictable. And I imagine for him, like really unpredictable as well. Yeah, I was just thinking yesterday morning, my husband uh, came out of the bedroom and uh, I don't know, for some, like our morning routine had like shifted slightly. And so Nino was not where he usually was. And I think my husband kind of like tripped over him or like bumped into him or something. And I mean, you know, yelped like you would not believe because it was so startling for him, you know, and it was just kind of like a, a it wasn't, you know, like a painful, it was more of a startle, you know, but he has such a overactive, like startle response to things. Mm-hmm. Poor guy. I know. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm always so grateful he ended up with us yeah. and, that we have such a like low key lifestyle and that we're able to, uh, you know, we're very routine. We're very creature habit. Like he thrives on routine and knowing what to expect. And, you know, and so I'm always just so glad he ended up with us and that we're able to like recognize and adapt to, to kind of his needs as best as, as we can. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, I always, in my head, I have this like dream vision of this alternate reality where he's like this dog model because he's just so handsome and, you know, we could be doing uh, news work or, you know, he could do some kind of competitive thing new because we do a lot of fun stuff with him around the yard and things, but I'm like, he's so good at this. Like, he's so like talented and, and beefy and I'm just like, oh, he could have had this whole like dog celebrity like alternate life you know <laughs> Aww. it sounds like just you want him you want the world to see 
the, him the way that you do. I do. And, and it makes me sad that nobody else will ever really see that about him. Like our neighbors are very like concerned about him because he's like, you know, very reactive to them doing things. And like he's nipped my mom and, you know, when she's come over and, and I just feel bad that nobody else ever gets to see the great dog that Tim and I do. But I'm just glad that he does have a safe space to be that way most of the time, you know, the vast majority of the time. Absolutely. It sounds like you take such good care of him. <laughs> we try. Yeah. It is like I'm so glad like he wasn't like our first dog ever or something, you know. <laughs> you would have learned a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious when people work with you working in like the the shelter rescue volunteer experience that I've had a lot of people just want an easy dog <laughs> and and they don't uh they don't know what to to do when when this isn't like the dog that they had as a kid or wasn't like the dog that they had before or something so do you i assume your sessions with people involve like a lot of education about like some of these things that we've been discussing today mm-hmm. yeah yeah it is a lot of education for people and i think As you were saying that, I was realizing I've never, like, I haven't had a client who has been like, why, why do I have this dog? Or I wish I had an easy dog. And, and those are like valid, uh, valid feelings to feel when you're dealing with a dog that has such complex needs. Um, But I think one thing that's really common between all of my clients is they really want to help their dog, you know, and they are just like, I love this dog so much and my dog deserves the best and I want to make sure I'm giving them the best and that like they just get to still be here with me. And that's like the most important thing for them. That's a wonderful, wonderful approach. I always wonder about that, like your art, but I, but I think like, I think people who would be attracted to working with you would be in that category, you know, would, would feel that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you use some terms on your website that I was hoping you could explain a little more for us, such yeah. as uh, somatic consent and co-regulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So somatic consent, um, somatic means of the body and consent is a practice of know of like feeling what comes up in your body as you are moving through either a decision or an interaction or some sort of experience. And so, so for example, the process of welcoming somebody into my home, if I, I, the way I described um, what I did when you came and visited, I went through a somatic consent process to plan that out. So, and I actually wrote a a workbook about this. It's called sensory safety planning. And so what I did was I reflected on what that experience felt like to me. And I used my senses to sort of help me figure that out. Like I imagined somebody coming to the door and I thought about like, what does it sound like? Um, What do I see around me? What am I feeling in my body? Um, What am I wearing? Uh, What is the air temperature? You know, like all those details. And that helped me to know that I felt um, really startled when someone would knock on the door. And I would feel really uh, overwhelmed if I wasn't like prepared 
before that happened. And I would feel frustrated if I was trying to like do it by myself and I like my partner would, would not know how to help me. And so that helped me to know that I would have boundaries. Like I don't want people to knock on the door when they arrive at my home. I just want to know what time they're going to get there. And then I also don't want to rush that process. I need to ask for help. I need to ask my partner to help me cut up the treats or not open the door until I'm ready. Um, Asking the person to wait outside. And so putting that plan in place was like creating conditions for me to say yes to having someone visit my home as opposed to just feeling overwhelmed and like never wanting to do it again. I love that so much. Thank you. (laughs) So yeah, I know you have a download on your website for the sensory planning and then also for the co-regulation where you go through like the breathing exercise, which I thought that that was a really helpful exercise too. Yeah. Yeah. So the co-regulation workbook is the, is the free download. And then the sensory safety planning workbook is $22 and they're both digital workbooks you can get on my site. And so co-regulation means shifting the nervous system from one state to another with another being. And so we often think of self-regulation as like, the way I think of it is like being able to feel what you're feeling and express it and then also care for how you're feeling, right? And when we are developing, we don't we can't do this. We don't have the development in our brain to be able to do that for ourselves until we're 25 to 30 years old. Wow. And so we learn self-regulation through co-regulation by having our parents help us like notice when we need help and giving us help teaching us things like breathing you know like slowing down and breathing or taking a nap when you're tired or eating when you're hungry um, or like how to how to be angry in a way that's healthy right and with dogs because dogs are complex social beings like us they and they have an extensive developmental period. They don't have the brain power to self-regulate until they are at least three years old. And so they need someone to co-regulate with them to teach them how. And so that's, um, I focus on that with my clients, teaching them how to co-regulate with their dogs, which benefits both their dogs and them. themselves. Oh, I love it so much. So you also have a podcast, right? I do. Yeah. So my podcast is a collaboration with my friend Angela from Cloud Doodles. And the podcast is called Happy Dog, Happy Human. And we talk about mental health because both Angela and I are uh, mental health therapists. um, Angela is a social worker and I'm an occupational therapist. And then we both have dogs and love dogs and do work around dogs. And so we talk about we talk about mental health labels and like our experiences of anxiety and trauma and grief. For each episode, for each topic, we do two episodes. So one episode is on the human experience, and then there's an episode on the dog experience as well. 
Well, that's wonderful. I'll make sure we have a link in the show notes for anybody who wants to check out Happy Dogs, Happy Humans. I love that name. (laughs) Thank you. And so where can everybody find out more about working with you and the services and products that you have to offer? You can either go to my website. It's hc-collab.com. That's hc like happy cat dash c like cat. O-L-L-A-B, like biscuit.com. Or you can find me on Instagram at Holistic Dog Expert. Well, I'll make sure that we have links in the show notes for everybody so that they can find you. And I really do appreciate all of the, the resources that you share on your website and, and that you're your approach to work, to working with dogs. And uh, I'm so excited just for like the future of training and behavior that, that we're starting to have these kinds of, of recognition of how dogs are processing the world and that it's not just all sit and, you know, yank on the leash and things like this. So <laughs> I'm very excited about the future and to see you being part of this, this movement. And thank you so much for your time today, Sharon. Thanks, Erin. It was such a delight to connect with you. And I'm so glad that we had this conversation. So after I finished talking to Sharon, if you knew me, you knew the first thing I had to do was go and Google statistics about dog anxiety. And what I found was really fascinating, which is that some studies show that up to 72% of dogs show some different form of anxiety. So that's a lot of different dogs who are being affected by the world around them in different ways. Now, this could be things like noise phobia, such as, you know, thunder or fireworks. It could be things like separation anxiety, fear of strangers, fear of other dogs. And for instance, 15% show fear of strangers and 17% show fear of other dogs. So that's like almost one in five dogs being affected by these different things that you might encounter out and about in the world. You know, we've never done any formal dog training classes with Nino because Tim and I never felt like it was a great situation for him to take him out to go to a place to do training because he gets very anxious in the car and he gets very anxious not being at our house. And he also gets very anxious if somebody comes over to our house. So that really felt like our options were limited. Now, in the last few years, Zoom training has become a better option. And I love that that's one of the services that Sharon offers to work with dogs who perhaps in-person training isn't the best fit for whatever reason. You know, I really encourage each and every one of you to spend some time learning about the nervous system, both for people and for your dogs, and learn how different stimuli in the world can impact you. And if you have a response to something that's not like everybody else's, that doesn't make you weird or wrong or bad or broken. It just means that you process the world a little differently. And there's so many people out there that do, but we are probably all doing it in our own little unique, different ways and don't know that everybody else is doing it. And so I'm glad that we're finally able to talk about these things and have a language to describe these experiences that we might think we need to keep to ourselves because we're ashamed that we're different in some way.
I'm so grateful to Sharon for sharing her approach to dog training with us. And honestly, I don't even think dog training is the best term to describe it, right? Like it's more like how to co-create a life with your dog that feels fulfilling and safe to everyone involved. And if that sounds like an approach that you would like to take with your dog, make sure to check the links in the show notes to find out how you can work with and learn from Sharon. So that'll do it for this episode of the Believe in Dog podcast. If you like this episode, remember that you can always leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's pretty much the biggest compliment that you can give a podcaster. You can always find me at Believe in Dog Podcast on Facebook or at Erin the Dog Mom on Instagram. So until next time, this is Erin Scott sending you hugs and belly rubs. The Believe in Dog podcast is a production of Hugs and Belly Rubs, LLC.